Well, I invite you to turn with me, if you will, in a copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 3. We're going to pick up at verse 21 and read all the way through verse 13 of chapter 4. Luke chapter 3, 21 through chapter 4, verse 13. Beloved saints, this is God's Word. Uh, Let us give our attention to the reading of it. Now, when all people... When all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about thirty years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semin, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kossum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days. And being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry, and the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And so ends the reading of God's Word. Let us pray that our Lord would be pleased to minister to us through His Word uh, this morning. 
Our most gracious God, our hearts are prone to wander. Our minds are slow to understand, and we are not by nature people of your word. And so we ask that you would be among us, and that you would speak to our hearts, that you would illumine our minds, and that you would give us ears to hear your most holy truth. We hear in your word this morning. Amen. So we're going to focus on memorizing this genealogy together this morning. Wouldn't that be fun? Those of you who know me know that I'm not big into sports, uh, and so I'm no expert when it comes to sports. But according to the movies I've watched, uh, one thing that coaches like to do before a big game is to watch films or movies of the other team Uh, beforehand and see how they play. And of course, the goal, according to the movies I've watched, uh, is to get to know the other team well enough that you can anticipate uh, their defense, their offense, how they'll play, what they'll do. Because if you can anticipate how they're going to play and what they're going to do, you can account for that in your plan and you'll have a better chance of winning. Now, there's a good lesson here for our battles against the devil's temptations in our lives. Because if we can know our opponent, we can anticipate his attacks. And if we can anticipate his attacks, then we can prepare for them and increase our chances of standing up against them. And it's not hard to know how he will attack. Because he's been doing the same thing since the beginning. His his attacks that he's been doing since the beginning, they might look a little bit different on the surface, but they're always the same under. They're one of three things. The enemy will attempt you to question God's truth and to see yourself or someone else as the source of all knowledge, or he will tempt you to see God's authority as being enslaving and encourage you to cast off God's authority in your quest for freedom. Or he will tempt you to set up a false test for God's love which will lead you to believe that God is not good or loving. So he will either test you or tempt you to throw off God's truth, reject God's authority, or doubt that God is good and loving. Those are the temptations that you will face over and over and over again. And how you respond to them when they come is of great importance, and that's what we want to look at today. Our passage intentionally compares Jesus and Adam. In this huge, long genealogy, these are the two that are called sons of God. God says at the baptism, Jesus, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He was supposed uh, by many to be Joseph's son, but really he's God's son. And as we trace back that genealogy, Adam has no earthly father, only God who is in heaven. They begin and they end the genealogy that we hear in in Luke chapter 3. We're meant to compare and to contrast them. 
And that's especially true when we consider the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by the devil. The echoes of the temptation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 is intentional. This is the devil's playbook. He used it with Adam, he used it with Jesus, and he will use it with you. And so as we read our passage this morning, we're, we're not just meant to see what Jesus faced. That's part of it, and that's very important. But we're also meant to see what we will face as well. And as we do, we will also see what God calls us to in the face of such temptations. I might put it this way. God calls his children to resist the devil's temptations by trusting his word, by trusting his word, by respecting his authority, and by recognizing his love where it's truly found. By trusting his word, submitting to his authority, and recognizing his love. That's what I hope to unpack in the the time ahead of us in God's word this morning. After Jesus' baptism uh, by his cousin John, he went out into the wilderness and he was tested for 40 days. And for 40 days he ate nothing. For 40 days he was alone. And when those 40 days were over, the devil came to him and said, Look, there's a stone. If you are the Son of God, change it into a loaf of bread. Command that stone to become bread. Now imagine how you would feel at that time. Having eaten nothing for 40 days. Hungry. Emaciated. Is there anything you wouldn't do at that point for food? The temptation would be pretty great. But I'm not sure we really understand the nature of the temptation. It would be so easy easy to reduce this down to the issue of food and contentment. Can you put up with hunger? But that doesn't fully explain how Jesus responds. His response focuses on God's truth, on his word. He quotes a well-known verse from Deuteronomy 8, Uh, Verse 3, man does not live by bread alone and the expectation is that the reader will fill in the rest because the reader knows it so well, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is the expectation. Matthew quotes the whole thing. At the heart of the devil's temptation is a discontentment with God's truth, with God's reality. The devil is saying, God has given you a stone. Change it into something that suits you better. Because God's reality isn't good enough. So you need to disregard how God has set things up. Deny his reality. Make your own reality. Find your own truth. Let me know if any of this sounds familiar. And this is really no different than what he told Adam and Eve in the garden. God had said, do not eat the fruit for you will die. 
But the devil came along with his contradictory words, you shall surely not die. And you can hear what he's saying. He's saying, God is a liar. His word can't be trusted. His version of reality is suspect and it must be rejected. You know better than God does. Take that fruit which he has forbidden and make it yours. Don't let him tell you what's true, what's real. The fact that Satan is calling Jesus to doubt God's reality by taking food is not a coincidence. It's straight out of his playbook. He's been doing it for years. It's exactly what he told Adam and Eve to do. But unlike Adam, Jesus refused to believe that a better life came through denying God's word. Because life is found in God's word. Life is not found in denying reality, but in acknowledging and accepting and and submitting to and embracing it. What better passage could Jesus quote to that temptation than life is found not in denying God's word, but in God's word, more so than even the food that fills the belly? Having been rebuffed on his first attack, the devil took Jesus to a high place and he showed him what were called are the kingdoms of the world, which probably refers to the Roman Empire. And then he offers those kingdoms to Jesus. That would make Jesus Caesar of the most powerful empire history had ever known to that point. It's an offer of absolute power and authority. Well, almost absolute. Because there is one caveat, isn't there? All he would need to do to get it is to bow down and worship Satan. But you're not supposed to notice that. You're just supposed to see it as freedom from all authority. But there can only be one at the top. Because, and the devil is certainly not going to submit to Jesus. And so at the absolute top, it's one or the other... He's not offering Jesus no authority. He's simply offering him a different authority. It's almost like this isn't really about, Satan, about Jesus, but about Satan's quest for power and control. His quest to be worshipped and followed and adored. You see, the idea that you can serve no one is an absolute myth. It's a lie. The, only, the question isn't, are you going to serve someone, but whom are you going to serve? But Satan will seldom come out and simply say, I want you to serve me. It will always be cloaked in serving yourself and casting God off. This is what he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. He told them that that by withholding the fruit, God was keeping them from realizing their full potential. But, he whispered, 
There's a way to force God to give you what you need to realize your full potential. Just take the fruit and God will be compelled to give you all knowledge. Take the fruit and you will be just like God. Take the fruit and you will force, you will control him. You will be in charge. No one can stop you. All you have to do is trust me, not him. Submit to my words, not his. Follow me, not him. It's the same offer he brings to Jesus. And the question facing Jesus is the same question that faced Adam and Eve. Will they submit to the Heavenly Father or to the serpent? Will Jesus now submit to his Heavenly Father or the serpent? Again, quoting Deuteronomy, he said, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. There's no freedom from authority. There's only submission to the right authority and submission to the wrong authority. Freedom, true freedom is found in submitting to the right, uh, rightful authority because it reflects reality and there's no freedom in fighting against reality. You might try to set a fish free by taking it up out of the pond that has enslaved it all its life and setting it on the shore next to the pond. But that fish wasn't created to live out of water. And what you call freedom is death. And so it is with God. What some call freedom is death. True freedom is learning to bask in submission to the one true God. Him only shall you serve. Foiled again, the devil went to his third, his tried and true temptation. The last challenge, the first against God's love, the second against God's authority, the third is against God's love. He took Jesus to the top of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He quotes Psalm 91, which we just looked at a a few months ago. But the key to what he is attacking is found in those first words. If you are the Son of God. He's arguing that that if, if Jesus is the Son of God, the Father should love him above all else. And if he loves him above all else, he will not let any harm come to him. So let's give it a test. Throw yourself off the temple and see if he comes to the rescue. Let's see if God really loves you. Now we know how this works. We've been doing this since we were young. We, we start by saying things to our parents, if you really love me, you'd let me go out on Friday night. If you really love me, you'll buy me that car. If you really love me, you'd let me date him. And it starts with the reality that we feel loved when people give us things we want. But then we start to believe that that love is giving us what we want. 
And so we believe that love never says no. But when you get everything you want, you start to realize it's not really love. It doesn't really satisfy. You get bored. You get angry. And eventually you start to test people to just see what you can get them to do for you. But of course, by that point, it has nothing to do with the other person's love and it has everything to do with your self-obsession and your self-love. It, it becomes an attempt to feel loved in the complete absence of love. And the more you get, the emptier your feet you feel Because love is not getting everything you want. And any test that says it is 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 absolutely doomed to failure. And this is a lesson that Adam and Eve had to learn the hard way. The serpent said the real reason God would not let them have the forbidden fruit is because not because it would kill them, because it would make them better, And God didn't want that for them. He didn't want them to be better. He didn't want to share his knowledge with them. He was selfish. He was stingy. He lied to them because of his selfishness. He lied to them because he doesn't really love them. If he did, wouldn't he give them the fruit? And with it, God-like knowledge. You see, when you start with a false test, you will always get the wrong answer. If loving you means giving you everything you want, you will never find love. Parents who try to love their children this way end up destroying their children. Throwing yourself off the temple and saying, God, if you love me, catch me, isn't wise. It's absolutely idiotic. I tried to find a nicer word, but I couldn't find one. And Jesus knew that. And so once more, he turns to Deuteronomy. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Love will be tested. There's no doubt there. But those who intentionally put it to the test aren't seeking love, they are seeking self. The question at this point is not, does the Father love Jesus? The question is, does Jesus love the Father? Were he to hurl himself off the temple in a selfish and self-destructive demand to see the Father jump through his hoops, all he would be demonstrating is self-love. And it would be an act that denied love, not revealed it. And he understood this. And he rejected the devil outright. All three of the devil's tried and true methods failed. And he fled from Jesus. Now, while our passage is about two sons, Adam and Jesus, it's written for many sons and daughters, among whom are we. And if we're honest with ourselves, we, we can tend to think, oh, if I had been there, you know, I wouldn't have taken that fruit. I would have seen right through that serpent's lies. And when you believe this, the only one you fool is yourself. 
in that long genealogy that I read and you listened to in chapter 3, which one of them did better? There are some pretty impressive names in that list. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Boaz, David, Noah. And they all fell into temptation in various ways. And we do as well. But that reality isn't a call to complacency and indifference. God wants us to fight temptation. And if you're going to battle temptation when it comes, you need to know whom you are up against. Because he doesn't change his plans. Why should he? (laughs) They've been successful for so long. And the big game is coming. And you've been given the films of how he plays the game. From Adam to Jesus, his plan of attack is unchanged. It remains the same today, and you need to be ready. These are the temptations that he will whisper in your ear. You will be tempted to doubt God's truth. You will question if there really is a God. You will question whether there really is only one way to heaven. You will wonder if an ancient book, 2,000 years old or older, can still be relevant in our modern times. After all, you're going to wonder whether God understood where, where equal rights would bring us. You will wonder whether God could anticipate the, the modern discoveries of psychology or whether binary understandings of gender are just an artifact from unenlightened times. You will question whether sex outside of marriage could really be wrong if it's just an expression of love. How many things could we add to this list? But the devil's dirty little secret is that he doesn't actually need to make a logical, convincing argument. He just needs to tell you something that you want to believe. Because rejection of God's truth is never a matter of something making more sense. It's always a matter of wanting something to believe. Wanting something else. Not only will the devil tempt you to reject God's truth, he will always tempt you to reject God's authority. We're a lot like fish who think freedom is always just beyond the edge of the pond. We think that freedom is found in rejecting all authority, bowing to no one. But of course, there's no such thing. All we can really do is exchange one authority for another. You'll be tempted to ask, who is God to tell me what I can and can't do? Who's God to make the rules? Who does he think he is? Oh, God? Why should I have to follow him? The simple answer is because he made you. It's not the only answer, but it is a sufficient answer. But you could add to that, couldn't you? That there's no hope anywhere else. When you cast off God, you are left on your own. Do you hold eternity in your hands? Can you quench the fires of hell? Can you conquer death? We could add another reason to submit to God's authority. 
It's because he loves us. But of course, that's the devil's final ploy, isn't it? You will be tempted to question God's love. And it will sound awfully familiar. If God loves me, why can't I be with the person I love? If God loves me, why would he allow me to get sick? If God loves me, why wouldn't he let me have what's so important to me? Does God want me to be miserable? And you'll be tempted to test God's love. You'll say things like, I'm going down this road, and I have faith that God will work it out. I'm going to quit my unfulfilling job. I know that God will provide me something better. I don't know how I'm going to pay for this house, this car, this vacation, but I have to have it, and I know that God will work it out. False tests will always lead to bad results. So what do we do? What hope is there when you are tempted? Is there a way of escape? First, we need to be profoundly clear on this point. Your hope is not in your ability to fight temptation. Your eternity will not depend upon how well you resist temptation. Your hope, if it was in your own strength, would lead you to an already lost battle. (laughs) You cannot win if your hope is in your own strength. So let's go back to where our passage started. Jesus was baptized by his Father. His Father spoke down from heaven, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Jesus is the only one who has withstood the attacks of the enemy. He is the only one who never gave in to temptation. We heard it in our our declaration of pardon this morning. We have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but has been tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. Baptism was patterned after uh, the ancient practice of water ordeals. This is when somebody was uh, thought to be guilty of something. They'd throw him in a river, and if he lived, he was innocent, and if he was guilty, he had been judged by the gods. When Jesus comes back to the shore and the Father renders a verdict that he is innocent, that's what they're supposed to understand, that he has been judged guiltless by God. And this ultimately anticipates the resurrection. That is where he is shown to be the pleasing son of God. For there, if he had sinned, he would have remained dead. And coming out, he is shown to be sinless, perfect, and satisfying. And so our hope must be in him and his perfect life. Ultimately, your way of escape is in resting in the one who has conquered the devil. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That doesn't mean that what you do with temptation is unimportant. By saying that that your hope isn't in your ability to fight temptation, it doesn't mean don't worry about your ability to fight temptation. How could it? If you belong to Jesus, then you should be defined by his reality, by that reality. You should want to fight temptation like he did. 
You should want to respond to the devil's lies like he did. And so you need to not just study your enemy's films, but your Lord's as well. He met the devil's lies with God's word. You need to store up God's word in your heart and recall it when temptation comes knocking. Because there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. There is no temptation that you will experience that is not common to all people. It will be one or all three of these in some shape or form. But the scriptures tell us that God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may endure it, 1 Corinthians 10. James tells us, Pastor Brian should preach on this next week. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you like he did Jesus. God calls his children to resist the devil's temptation by trusting his word, by respecting his authority, and by recognizing his love where it is truly found. Trusting his word, submitting to his authority, and recognizing his love where it really is. Before us, we have the Lord's Supper. And it reminds us that Jesus was sinless so that not even death could hold him. We have bread and wine because we have no body to venerate. Jesus' body isn't in the grave. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not on earth. Because he was the son of God who was perfect in every way, death could not hold him. He was raised up and shown to be the son of God with power. And so we use bread and wine to to commemorate his body because his body has been raised. They are testimonies then. The bread and wine are testimonies that God's verdict over his son was, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. But as we eat this bread and as we drink this wine, we are reminded of another truth. That we who trust in him by faith have Jesus in us. And he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Beloved, as surely as you eat this bread, And drink this wine. God assures you that you are not alone. He assures you that you are his child. And he assures you that he is faithful and he will not abandon you when you are tempted. And so let us draw near. And in drawing near, let us find strength in him. I'd like to ask Pastor Brian and the elders to come forward. And please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Thank you for letting us see into the enemy's playbook. Now we ask that you would help us to stand strong against his attacks. Most of all, Father, we thank you for Jesus, your son, with whom you are well pleased, that he did not give into temptation, but he lived the perfect life that we could not. Help us to rest in him and to be more like him in our fight against temptation, we pray. Amen.